He died at the age of 56. You know, in our medically advanced world, that would be considered a very young age. But before he died, he had impacted our world like no other. You know, in 2007, his company introduced a device which would go on to become one of the most life-transforming devices of all time. With this device, you don't need your computer. You don't need your camera. You don't need even sometimes your car keys. I don't know where my wallet is because I don't need my credit card. Almost my entire life hmm. is lived on a smartphone. Whenever I'm stepping outside, I only need to make sure I have one thing. I have to make sure that I have my phone with me and I'm set. Now, in the process, he built one of the most successful companies in the history of the world. In July 2020, Apple was considered the most valuable company in the history of the world, crossing $2 trillion. Now, with such success, you would think that he would live a bit longer to enjoy the fruit of his labor. But unfortunately, he had an appointment with death that he could not cancel. He had everything life had to offer. He had success, he had fame, he had money. But like all flesh, death came calling. You know, sometimes death makes us wonder whether life is worth living. What's the point of all the effort and all the hard work? Now, looking around, I, I see a lot of young people in this room. When you are young, people tell you, study hard, get good grades, get into the best universities, get a great job, settle down, and life would be a roller coaster, or life would be great ahead of you. But sooner or later, that life comes scratchingly hot. It comes to a point where you are come to face to face with that. They told you to do everything that you could do. You went to school, you got the good grades, you got to the university, and here you are, come to the point of death. You know, I see a lot of us in this room have passed the, the midlife stage. Sooner or later, we would have our own appointment with death. Whether you are young or old, death stares all of us in the face. But this morning, we want to find out. The question is, is there any hope for us, considering that the shadow of death hangs over all of us? Or let me ask in a different way. What is your hope in life? Are we all doomed to die? And that's it. To help us answer this question, this morning we turn our attention to Psalm 16. We want to hear what David had to say about this. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to Psalm 16. I want you to open so that you can track along with me. 
Psalm 16, Psalm 1, 6. A meeting of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They are drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. In the superscript, David tells us, or we are told, that this is a psalm of David. But we are, we are not told the event that, that led to the writing of this psalm. No, but judging from the content, theologians believe that it was written during a time of relative peace in David's life. You know, in many other psalms, including the ones that we considered two weeks last week and the week before that, you see the psalmist writing and pleading to God, praying to God to deliver him from his enemies and his accusers. But in this psalm, we, we don't see any of that, the, the prayer for, uh, to, to be protected against enemies. So it is believed that it was written at a time of very uh, peaceful time of David's life. And we also see in the superscript that this is uh, a psalm or it's a victim of David. Various explanations have been given for uh, this meaning, or the meaning of this word. But still, there is no conclusive evidence of what it exa exactly means. Some say that it's a musical instrument or a tune to be, to be sung. Others, including Martin Luther, believe that this word is derived from a word that signifies gold. And so... Together with five other psalms, they believe that these are called the golden psalms. But whatever it is, or for our purposes this morning, whether it is a musical note to be sung, or it is uh, a golden psalm, for us, this is the word of God, and we would do well to pay a closer attention to it. And reading through the psalm, we realize that it's, it's a prayer of confidence where David declares his trust in God to keep him safe, both in life and in death. And if you are taking notes, that will be the simple outline of, of the sermon. David's hope in life and David's hope in death. Just two simple headings. 
So first, let, let's look at David's life, David's hope in life. This is covered from verses 1 to verse 9. We see David's hope in life. And in those verses, we meet the three companions of David who gave him hope in life. There are three companions that we see from 1 to 9 who gave, it, who gave David hope in life. First, we see his God, the people of God, and the word of God. Those will be the sub-themes under point number one. So we see David's God, the people of God, and the word of God. So first, let's look at, or let's meet David's God. In verse one, David prays. Look with me at verse one. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The statement, preserve me, can also be translated as keep me safe, watch over me, or guard me. But we've already said that this psalm was written at a a time of relative peace. So why is David still praying to God to keep him safe? No, David understood that he lived in a world that is broken by sin. And because of that, he needed God's continued preservation. He wasn't someone who called on God when times are hard and then forgot about him when everything was going well. He lived this life, whether in peace or in war, in union with God. That was David. So he wasn't only in trouble that he went crying to God. And we also see in in the second part of verse 1, if you look at it, the second part of verse 1, David's prayer for safekeeping was not in a vacuum. He didn't just wake up one morning and pray that God save me. Instead, it was rooted in a prior relationship with God. He says, preserve me, O God. Why? For in you I take refuge. He didn't suddenly wake up and ask for protection. No, every prayer we hear David pray is rooted in the covenant God had with his people. God had promised to preserve those who take refuge in him. And so David here, when he says, preserve me for I take refuge in you, he is rooting his request or his petition in a covenant that he had with God. If you don't trust God, how can you ask him to save you in time of trouble? So that's why David prayed to God. There was a covenant there. Now for some of us, when times are good, we take credit. And when times are bad, we blame God. But that was not the case with David. Look with me at verse 2. In verse 2, he gives the credit to God for every good thing in his life. He declares, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is the confession of a man who knows his true state. Now, by all standards, David was one of the most successful kings in the history of Israel. He was the standard by which later kings would be judged. 
He never lost a battle in his entire life. But you know what? David knew the source of his greatness. He was a shepherd boy, the last of eight brothers. He was far removed away from the kingship. And yet God set his electing love on him, and he made him king over Israel. Therefore, he could say with all humility, I have no good apart from you. In his Thanksgiving prayer in 1 Chronicles 17, 16, he said, Who am I, O Lord God, that you, that what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? That was David. You know, in our merit-based society, we are often told that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. We pound our chest and take credit for our accomplishments. We are told to stay confident and not allow anyone to take credit for our work. Unconsciously, that anyone sometimes includes God. We don't even want to allow God to take credit for our work. But that was not David. He knew the source of his true greatness. He says, I have no good apart from you. What is it that has made you so proud? What is the source of your arrogance? Now, Paul's question in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 is one that we must constantly be asking ourselves. Paul was asking, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? James, emphasizing the same point, says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So in verses 1 and 2, we meet David's God. He is the refuge that kept him safe. He was the source, or he was the source of his every good blessing. That was David's God. And next, we meet David's second companion. So the first companion was his God. Then we meet, now we meet the second companion, which is the people of God. Now, one thing you see throughout David's life was that he never spoke about God without speaking about the people of God. In this psalm, not only did he take refuge in God, he also delighted in God's people. Look down with me at verse 3. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now, David had a deep understanding that you cannot separate God from God's people. You can't love God and not love his people. They come as a package. And that's why the Apostle John, in 1 John 4.20, he said, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
David exemplified this so well. He was always in the company of God. You know, he read the scriptures with them. He sang the scriptures with them. He prayed with them. He ate with them. Basically, he lived life together with them. He hung out with them. In verse 3, he says, they are the excellent ones. This morning, is this how you see your fellow members in UCCD? Or do you see them as people who are supposed to be tolerated? One thing you must know is this. If you don't like God's people on earth here, chances are you wouldn't love them when you get to heaven. Which means that you might not get to heaven because you wouldn't like heaven. Because these people will be there. Now, Paul referred to the believers he wrote to as saints, not because they were without fault, but because these were people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and are being conformed to the image of Christ. We should delight in one another as Jesus delighted in his church and gave himself up for her. Now, in verse 4, David compares, look with me at verse 4, he compares the saints in the land to those who run after other gods. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Back in verse 3, he calls the saints excellent ones. But in verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. While he delights in the saint in verse 3, he stays away from the idolaters in verse 4. He says in the second part of verse 4, he says, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's talking about the idols here. Now, I'm sure most of us in this room know one or two about idol worship. They demand blood. Idols demand blood and they are never satisfied. You know, so take the work, uh, the idol of work, for example. Initially, what it will say is that it tells you to, to work hard, and in return, it will give you success. Over time, it demands more and more blood. So from five days working a week, it demands six days. Eventually, it demands seven days a week. Sooner or later, it tells you, you are sleeping too much. Cut down on your sleep. So you sacrifice a bit of your sleep. Then comes the promotion time, and it whispers in your ears. If you want to rise in your career, you should spend more time in the office. Eventually, you sacrifice your wife and your children on the altar of work. And even that, it will not be satisfied because idols are never satisfied. That is the, the demand of every idol, whether the idol of money, the idol of fame, the idol of entertainment, whatever you name it, they demand blood and they are never satisfied. David says that the sorrows of those who run after them shall multiply. 
But you know, David tells us that he has made a different choice. Look down with me at verse 5. While others run after the idols, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. While the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, David exclaims, I have a beautiful inheritance. He has chosen, or his chosen portion is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God. No, he said his name is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He doesn't demand blood. He gives of his own blood to save us. No, he doesn't burden us with things that we cannot hold. Rather, he says, come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I would give you rest. Such is our God. With a God like him, David could boldly say in verse 6 that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, the imagery being used here is one of the promised land. Now, when God called Abraham, he promised him a land which was supposed to be the greatest of all inheritance. And from that time on, the life of the Israelites always centered around the land. So here, David was using that imagery uh, to signify or to, to drive home the point that he wants to make. Imagine this afternoon receiving a call from Sheikh Muhammad saying that for staying in Dubai for five years, you have been rewarded with a piece of land that is next to the Zabil Palace. You know, first of all, that place is not even a free zone area. You can't, it's not a freehold. You can't hold, or expert cannot hold lands there. And secondly, that land would not even be given to the most prominent Emiratis. But the Sheikh calls you as an expert, says that this land, you share a wall with me, this land, for good. That is what David is talking about. Even that, this is a, a very imperfect example, but living in Dubai, that is the kind of example that we can have in mind. So David is invoking the imagery of the land. For the Israelites, the land was the most important inheritance. So he's invoking it to drive home his point. But even though he uses the imagery of the land, he is really not concerned about some piece of real estate in Palestine. No, he says that the Lord himself is his portion. He has chosen the Lord as his portion. As far as David was concerned, if he had God and nothing else, that was enough. If he had everything else and had no God, it means he had nothing. And that's why he said in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. If the Lord is your chosen portion, you have the best deal ever. Because there is nothing greater than that. 
have the best deal ever. You know why? Because in verse 5, it says that you hold my lot. You hold my lot. You know, sometimes you see this great offer in a magazine, right? And you get all excited about it. And then as you read through, you see these small writings at the bottom of the page, which says, stocks, say, offer valid while stocks last. You know what that means? That means that you might go there and that offer will not be available. But that is not what David is talking about here. The offer he's talking about here, the deal that he's talking about here, is one that is secure. God himself is the guarantor of this inheritance. He says, you hold my lot. And that's why Peter could say, say that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? Kept in heaven for us. Whatever inheritance you have in this life can be taken away. Stocks market crash. Houses and cars depreciate. Inflation eats away the value of our money. But if the Lord is your inheritance, if the Lord is your inheritance, the value is guaranteed. Now, David could say that without any ifs, without any buts, that the Lord is his chosen portion, and he had no good apart from him. This morning, I'm asking you, can you say the same thing? That the Lord is your chosen portion, and apart from him, you have no good. So, so far, we've met David's two companions. We've met his God and his people. Finally, we meet his third companion, who is the word of God. These are the three companions that gave David hope in life. His God, the people of God, and now we meet the word of God. Look down with me at verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. How is it that David was able to make these wise choices when others run after worthless idols? Now, the answer is in verse 7. It was God who gave him counsel. Now, left to ourselves, none of us would choose God. In Psalm 14, David himself says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to seek if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But his response was that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. So left to us, no one would choose God. If it had not been the Lord who gave him counsel, David would have made the same choices like the idolaters. God is the one who counseled David to make the choices that he made. This morning, 
who is giving you counsel? Who is instructing your heart, my Christian friend? No, don't take your marriage advice from Will Smith and his wife around that round red table. Don't take your advice from them. Or don't raise your children based on the ideas and the advices that are on expert women on Facebook. No. David says that it is the Lord that gave him counsel. Like David, let the word of God shape and guide your choices and your actions. That means that you have to give yourself to the daily reading and meditation of God's word. You can't get the counsel from anywhere. He will not, God will not come and whisper things in your ears. He gives us counsel through his word. So you must spend time in his word. That's where you would get counsel. Now Paul told Timothy to treasure the word of God. He says because he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now David was equipped for every good work because God was his counselor. With these three companions, his God, the people of God, and the word of God, David could go through life with hope. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. says that, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Is that not what we are all looking for in life? Gladness of heart, joy, and security. Now, most of us are here in Dubai because of these same reasons. The pursuit of happiness and security. <laughs> that's why the UAE government has set up the Ministry of Happiness, right? Because that's what we are all looking for. Happiness, joy, security. But David says that he finds all of these in God. Because he has set God before him, that's why he can be hopeful in life. But even in a great city like ours, in a place where everything seems to work, even this, we realize that it is not permanent. No, you, you move here with this great job. You love your job. But sooner or later, you would have to be transferred, like the case of many people. And if you're not transferred, you would definitely go on retirement at some point. The most valuable possessions fade and devalue. Our bodies age and our beauty fades. And that's why, even when we look at this life, even when we think that we've had a great life, even that is not permanent. Soon, death comes calling. 
death would come knocking on your door. And you know what? You cannot cancel that appointment. When death comes, you have to answer. And that brings us to our second point. David's hope in death. First, we looked at David's hope in life. Now we look at David's hope in death. Look down with me at verse 10. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, death is the only constant in life. Every person would have to answer the call unless Jesus Christ comes first. Moses, in Psalm 90, 9 and 10, pondering over his own life, said this, says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sire. The years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Death makes us wonder whether life is worth living. Knowing that whatever we build will soon be washed away by death. The question is, is it even worth it? Is it worth the, all the effort that we put in? Now, sometimes you go to the beach, you see children building sandcastles, all excited. But the moment they turn, the waves just come and washes the sandcastle away. You ask, what is all the effort? They've spent so much time to build this beautiful sandcastle. The waves just washes it away. That is how sometimes life, look, life looks like. Whatever we build will soon be washed away by death. But you know, our response to the question whether life is worth living depends on what we think lies ahead after death. David was hopeful even in death because of what he knew lied ahead after he died. And so in verse 10, you look at it again with me, in verse 10, it says that you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. He was confident that death is not the end of the story, that beyond death lies the pathway to life for everyone who believes in God. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, we read that, Then David slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. David died, and he was buried. And after that, we don't see anywhere in Scripture that David came back to life. So what does he mean, or what did he mean by the statement, you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption? And this is where Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, came to our aid. You know, in the Acts chapter 2 passage that Pastor John read for us, David, Peter explains for us what David meant in this psalm. So I just want us to just turn there briefly in the passage that Pastor John read for us in Acts chapter 2, just from 25 to 31. Just let's look at it again. 
Because Peter makes our work very easy for us. Acts chapter 2, just keep your hand in Psalm 16, and then we look at Acts chapter 2, 25 to 31. says that, for David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You would make me full of gladness with joy with your presence. 29, it says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the Petrarch, David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he would not abandon, he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So this was Peter's interpretation of Psalm 16. He says that David being a prophet, he was foretelling what would happen to Jesus. He is the only man who could say with confidence that he has set the Lord before him, and because of that, he will not see corruption. Only Jesus Christ could say that. He is the only one who could say, I have obeyed the Father perfectly. You know, in John, 4, in John 17 verse 4, he says that, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. He, Jesus, is the true Son of Man who obeyed the Father perfectly and could claim the covenant blessing of eternal life. Now, with all his confidence and trust in God, David, even David, did not obey God perfectly. He sinned grievously in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And then he sinned again when he disregarded God completely and took a sense of, a census of Israel. So even he could not lay claim to the promised eternal life. But you know who could? Jesus could. His resurrection from the dead is a proof that he obeyed the Father perfectly because only the truly righteous can inherit eternal life with God. But brothers and sisters, you know, David was not only a prophet. He was also a believer. You know, in John chapter 11, 25 and 26, Jesus told Martha, says that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus continues, says that, do you believe this? I'm sure David will respond together with Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe. Even as he prophesied in Psalm 16, he saw himself included in what the future death and resurrection of Christ would accomplish for all those who believe in God. 
he agreed with Paul that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. David was not a mere prophet. He was also a believer. My non-Christian friend, sooner or later, death would come calling. It is an appointment that you cannot reshadow. It's an appointment that you cannot cancel. My question to you this morning is that what will be your hope at the point of death? What will be your hope at the point of death? No, do not be deceived by anyone. Do not be deceived that there is no life after death. You know, for that much, all religions agree. All philosophies agree there is life after death. The question is that what would be your hope when you come there? You know, death is not a natural phenomenon. No, it is a punishment for man's rebellion against God. No, and it comes in two stages. We have the physical death, which we experience, all of us experience. And then there is a second death, which is yet to come. But there is a way of escape from the second death, which is the most horrible. Now, David tells us in verses 10 and 11 in our passage that there are two roads after you die. There are two roads. There is a path of life which leads to the very presence of God and where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And then there is a path that leads away from God into a place called Sheol, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and the warmth of the fire never dies. This morning, my non-believing friend, I plead with you to turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved from the wrath of God to come. Mm. You know, even demons don't want to go to hell. Yes? In Luke chapter 8, 31, we read about Jesus' encounter with, with some demons. In that conversation, the demons were begging Jesus not to send them to the abyss or to the place of Shur. If demons for whom hell was specifically created were begging Jesus not to send them there, I fear for you what will be your state when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Because the Bible tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. I plead with you this morning, if you have not made a deal with Christ, if you have not closed with God, today might be your day of salvation. Because what we are talking about is death. It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the warmth of the fire never dies. Today might be your day. 
David tells us, so while the enemies of God will be sent to hell, the redeemed in Christ will be ushered into the very presence of God, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You know, in the song that we sang earlier, a question was asked, says that, and what would heaven bring? And the response says that, everlasting life with him. And we would rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death would be destroyed. We would feast with the Lord in endless joy, when Christ is ours forevermore. That is the joy that awaits everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him face to face, we shall be like him. That is our hope. And you know, God being a gracious and a generous God, what he has done is that he's given us a foretaste of this pleasure in heaven, this joy that we're looking forward to. There are three ways, quick ways that he does that. The first way that we experience this heavenly joy is through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He assures us that we are the children of God. Every believer knows this sweet and comforting assurance. You know, in Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, Paul says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the Spirit gives us that foretaste of what we would experience in heaven. And secondly, uh, we experience great joy whenever we draw near to God in meditation and in prayer. You know, Psalm 119 uh, tells us a lot about the joy-producing effect of the Word of God. It's a very long psalm. If you have never meditated on that psalm, this weekend, you should spend some time and meditate on it. It's such a beautiful, it would produce joy like you've never known before. Now, some of us in this room have experienced those sweet and precious times when we shut the world away, we fixed our mind on Christ, and we experience God in a, in a very different way. This should not be an occasional occurrence. It should be something that we, we, we do every day. We should go to the Lord every day if we want to know the joy that is in his presence. And then finally, so we, we see, we get the, the foretaste through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Then we get it when we meditate and pray and commune with God on a daily basis through his word. Then finally, the, another way that we experience this foretaste of heaven is through the family of God here on earth, which is the church. Now, let me tell you a little secret. You will never know the complete joy of the Lord on this side of eternity, apart from God's people. I'll say it again. On this side of eternity, you will never know the complete joy of the Lord apart from God's people. It's an open secret in Scripture. God, in his wisdom, has designed that through the church that his manifold wisdom will be made known to the rulers and authorities. It's through the church that 
His glory is displayed through the ways that we love one another, the ways that he, we, we, we care and we help one another as we fight the Christian uh, fight. So you will never know the joy, the complete joy on this earth apart from God's people. Now, why do you think David was on and on and on about God's people? Every Psalms you read, you see David and his love for God's people because he understood that on this earth, his joy was bound up with God's people. So he pursued them. He looked for them. He wanted to be with them all the time because that is where God has commanded joy. You know, this past Monday, the Umsikim CLG had a Christmas social. You know, Paddy and Duncan treated us to one of the most delicious feasts anyone would experience on this side of eternity. Hmm. Now, we sang some Christmas carols, uh, and then we went around the room and all talked about how God has shaped our lives in the year. In that meeting, we had Duncan and Paddy from South Africa. We had Louise, James, Kim, Charlotte, Easy, and Sebastian from the UK. Then we had Ernest from Singapore. We had Eti from Malaysia, Octavio from Panama, Namada from Sri Lanka, Rafi and Chantel from the US and Lebanon. We had Nikki from Korea. And then we had Nora and myself from Ghana. It was such a sweet time as we went round the room, spoke about how God has been with us throughout the year, how the CLG has been a way that God has encouraged us. It was such a beautiful time. That is how God gives us joy, a foretaste. It says that, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is there that God commands his blessing. You know, I was having a chat with Scott Samuel earlier this week, and he told me that they had something similar on Tuesday at the DIFC CLG. Brothers and sisters, you will never experience the complete joy of the Lord on this side of eternity just by showing up on Friday. If you're a member of UCCD, you should press in into the church, press in into relationships. If you don't know how to do it, come talk to me, or even you can reach out to the church office. But don't be a lone ranger, because you will never experience the complete joy that God has destined for you here on earth. And if you are not a member yet, you should press in. You should join this church, or any other church for that matter, where the Bible is taught, because your joy is bound up in that. If you want a foretaste of heaven, look for it in the church. You know, it is reported that the last words of Steve Jobs at the time of his death was this. He said, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, three times. I'm not sure what was the message behind those words, whether it was an acknowledgement of the sheer power of death or it was an astonishment of the vanity of it all. We will never know. 
Who was that? But whatever it is, death makes us wonder oh. whether life is worth living. This was a man who impacted our modern lives like no one else. He was enormously successful by the standards of this world, yet he didn't live long to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He is one of those for whom this phrase would forever be, be attributed to, gone too soon. Based on what he believed during his lifetime, we have no idea what was his hope at the point of death. You know, Steve Jobs told his biographer, Walter Isaacson, that he was 50-50 on the existence of God. And he wasn't sure whether there was an afterlife. But this morning, we have met David, a man with profound confidence and trust in God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only did he know that there is life after death, but he was also confident that through his union with Christ, God will not abandon his soul to Sheol, and he will not let his soul see corruption. This was David's hope in life and death. The question this morning is, what is your hope in life and in death? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you for what you have accomplished through Christ. We thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that even in a broken world like ours, in a world of pain, in the world of turmoil, you have not left us alone, that we can hope, have hope that is beyond the grave. And so we thank you for this truth that we have seen in Psalm 16. Father, we pray that we would march on in life with hope in our hands, knowing that you would come soon. And when you come, we shall become like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.